Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from John 5, 2 through 9. Listen for what God is saying to you. In Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate in the north city was a wall is a pool with the harmonic name Bethsaida. It had five covered porches and a crowd of people were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed sat there. A certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, knowing that he had already been there a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. When I'm trying to get it when I'm trying to get to it, someone else has gotten in ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Immediately the man was well, and he picked up his mat and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Why don't we uh, come to God in a word of prayer uh, as we prepare our hearts to hear what it is that um, God has to share with us today. Loving God who walks with us, not just in the midst of chaos, but in the aftermath of chaos as well. We invite your spirit to be present in this space, that you would, um, as we sang earlier, break every chain that is binding our hearts and our minds and keeping us from imagining the possibilities that you might have for us. Help this to be a safe space, a brave space to imagine something beyond what we are in and experiencing at this moment, that, um, that that work of imagination might fuel us not just for the week ahead, but for the life that you have called us to live. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So in our passage for today, we have this scene um, that might as well be something like a war zone. Uh, we've got five covered porticos, which are sort of like covered open air porches um, that have been built around a pool. And spilling out of these porticos are many, many people, sick people, broken people, people whose hope for healing hinges on the fickle decisions of an occasionally present spirit. And the legend of the pool was that every once in a while, an angel would stir the waters, and whoever reached the pool first would find healing. But of course, the only way that anyone is going to stand a chance is if they can move quickly enough, which I think is just a cruel setup when you're talking about health care for the least healthy. So everyone is there pleading for their health, anxiously clutching their lottery tickets and hoping that the next time the angel comes, their number will get called. They're reduced to living their lives in an increasingly depressive holding pattern. Well, today is the last sermon in our series about healing to wholeness, and in so many ways, it has felt more timely than we could have imagined, painfully so. We talked about the power of fear a couple of weeks ago and how to dismantle it in our hearts and our minds. We talked about moving from passive coping to something more active, addressing our circumstances directly in ways that acknowledge the pain. 
Well, today we are talking about poor self-efficacy. And to help us understand what that is and how that plays out, I thought I would turn to um, one of our own, uh, UVCer Mike Algeyer, to share with us. So I'm going to invite Mike to come up. And while he's getting um, himself situated, I'll share a little bit more about him. Many of you know Mike and his family, uh, Carolyn and Ben. Um, they've been part of UVC Hyde Park Woodlawn since before we officially launched, actually, and have done a lot to help this community grow. What you might not know about Mike is that he's a chiropractor. Um, he's a back guy and uh, serves patients in the South Loop. Um, and it was actually from a conversation that I had with Mike that um, the seed of this sermon series was planted. So I asked Mike if he'd be willing to share a little bit of his experience with us this morning and about how self-efficacy um, in his experience uh, has an, or can impact a person's health outcomes. So welcome, Mike, and yeah, enlighten us. <laughs> Should be on, but maybe it's on. Oh, it's on. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Good? Good. Kind of, sort of. Okay, so um, I thought I'd kind of give you the technical, uh, you know, slightly longer version and then give you the one-liner that I kind of think uh, when I think self-efficacy. So it's the, <clears throat> it's the belief in one's capacity to execute behaviors necessary to produce specific performance attainments. Um, and it reflects confidence in the ability to exert control over one's own motivation, behavior, and social environment. So simply put, the way I think of it is one's perceived ability to overcome, generally speaking. So that can be, in re most of the time in my case, it's in reference to pain. So um, a couple important notes on this, and then, I mean, do you want me to? You can share a little bit about yeah. Yeah, okay. how so, play out. So a couple things. Um, it's important to recognize that when we talk about any of these things, passive coping, catastrophizing, fear, avoidance, um, particularly surrounding pain, but we, these are poor self-efficacy, depression. These are all normal for all of us. Like We all do this as uh, some kind of response to pain or struggle um, to a certain extent. And all of these things... I kind of think of them, it's hard to parse each one out in particular. Uh, Emily asked me to, Pastor Emily asked me to um, think about someone who I have seen in the past with low self-efficacy and how that sort of played out, and then someone who has had high self-efficacy. And it's tough to, like, I can't really go back and say it was self-efficacy. It was this per person's... Uh, perception of whether they could get better or not that drove the entire, their entire experience. Because it, in reality, it's more like a soup of everything or a web. And they all sort of influence, all of these things influence each other. Um, and I think it's also really important to recognize that all of these things are sort of flexible. So I oftentimes see people come in and I have them fill out kind of a uh, questionnaire that has some specific questions around self-efficacy and passive coping and, you know, depression. Um, and they score a certain way, maybe at sort of high risk for long-term pain uh, when they come in. And then three or four weeks later, um, it, it actually drops quite a bit. So uh, with the little relative simple work, um, it can actually change a lot. So, and that happens in most of us, I think. Um, so that's important to kind of note. Um, 
So a uh, couple of examples. One um, example of a patient that I saw with relatively low self-efficacy that I think actually it drove quite a bit of her outcome. Um, she had, you know, kind of general spine pain that was pretty severe. She had been on disability for about 10 years. I think she had the pain for about 20. Um, and, you know, she, she was pretty consistent about coming and, and she was getting, she told me that she was improving. She told me that the pain was getting better um, and that she was able to do more with less pain. Um, wasn't gone, but it was improving. So I had her retest like three or four weeks after we started. And the day that she retested, her, her mom came with her. And she's not, she's probably late 50s, uh, but her mom came with her anyway. And she was filling it out in the uh, reception area, and her mom was sitting right with her. And she was kind of going through it, and she was reading the questions to her mom, and her mom would be like, well, actually, do you remember that time you were walking and you had to sit down and blah, 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 and it really hurt overly? So she actually changed her responses based on what her mom said and scored worse than she did when she first came in. And I, and I it was a little frustrated. Uh, um, it was fairly clear. She didn't do particularly well, and I, I ended up having to refer her for psychology, uh, or a psychologist um, who focuses more on pain because her main, I, I think, her main driver was actually a combination of these sort of psychosocial issues of identifying the pain as part of her identity uh, and how she interacts with people, um, and which we don't always have great um, solutions for this sort of social aspect of it, um, like the interaction with her mom. Like, it really, it really drove a lot of whether or not she could get better or not. Um, and then a, 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 what I think is a relatively good example of a, someone with high um, efficacy that sort of influenced her care happened a few months ago. And this happens relatively often. She came in, she had really significant pain in, in sciatica, like true sciatica where it goes all sharp, horrible pain. It goes all the way down into the foot down your leg, um, and uh, you know, we tried a couple things, it wasn't really getting better, so we got an MRI. She had a pretty significant, like a big disc herniation that was directly pushing on the nerve, mm -hmm. and oftentimes when I see those folks, they're, usually, they're more likely surgical. Um, so we tried a couple other things and ended up, uh, we were able to find a particular exercise that really took the pain away pretty relatively consistently, um, but she was persistent. She kind, of, she kind of gave this idea, or this, this sort of energy that she really wanted to do everything she could to try and get better. She kind of owned the idea that she was gonna do whatever it took. Um, and she really improved significantly. She's still working on it a little bit because it's a, it's a sizable disc herniation. Um, but she's way better than she was, and a lot. Of, and I was, I was surprised. I, I was expecting her to have to see the surgeon, and the surgeon say, "Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna take this out." So, um, you know, that's another kind of example. Like it, it can really influence things both ways. And again, more soup, lots of different elements. But those are examples that I thought of. Thanks. Mm. Um, so this. 
this man who in our scripture passage today, um, it talks about how um, over, he's, he'd been sick about 38 years, um, which is a long time. I mean, that's older than I am right now by just a hair, but um, <laughs> I'll still claim it. Um, and so, you know, I, can't, you can't, I kind of think, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, like maybe at first it wasn't so bad for him. Um, you talked about that pain patient who she had had pain for 10 years before she even, before she went on disability and then 10 years more. So kind of the, the, the com- compounding of that time, right? Um, and so it's, it's hard, not hard to imagine that like after, you know, a decade or two or three, right, you would begin to kind of forget yourself a little bit, like what life was like back before you were sick, the things that you were interested in, the things that you enjoyed doing, the relationships that you had. And, you know, even more, spending all your day at this pool, right, surrounded by other people who are desperate and ill, who are scrabbling to get theirs before um, anyone else, it kind of puts you in a particular sort of headspace, right? Um, And it can reduce your imagination for what's possible. And so when Jesus comes to this man in the crowd, we don't really know why he chose that man in particular, right? He comes to this man in the crowd and he asks him this question, do you want to get well? And the question, like, doesn't even compute for him, right? His response is to talk about all the ways that the system is rigged against him, right? He's been down so long that he can't see beyond his circumstances, can't even begin to imagine his options. And in so many ways, he's just kind of given up and given in. He can't envision a future for himself. And you can, you can call it something like self-efficacy, but really what I see is a spiritual problem. Because God has a future for everyone. God has a future and a vision for this man's life, and it's not a future that includes another 38 years of waiting by a pool, hoping to get in. But in spite of his reduced vision, there's some tiny corner of that man's soul, I think, a shriveled-up remnant um, or of imagination or hope or something where they wanted to believe, this person wanted to believe, wanted to hope that they're not the lost cause that everyone thinks they, they are or sees them to be, including themselves, right? Because when Jesus commands him to get up, Scripture says he doesn't hesitate. He gets up. He doesn't even protest. When Jesus says, get up, when Jesus says, pick up your mat, when Jesus says, walk, he's appealing to that sliver of the man's soul that still has the audacity to hope. Jesus is appealing to the part of him that doesn't fully believe the stories that he's absorbed, that he's too washed up, too shriveled up, too given up and broken up to live a life that is meaningful in this world. When Jesus says, get up, when Jesus says, pick up your mat, when Jesus says, walk, he is actually, what he's doing is injecting a new storyline into that man's narrative, a narrative set that says, God isn't done with you yet. Now, there are some things, yes, that are beyond your control. And there are some things, yes, that cannot be cured or restored, some slates that can't be wiped entirely clean, but that doesn't mean that you're completely without power or without options. It doesn't mean that your story has been written and you best just, you know, take a seat and write it out, right? But so then what can we do to help folks who are so overcome by their circumstances that they can't see another way? How do we begin to increase self-efficacy, right? Well, I asked Mike that very question, and uh, he's got a few thoughts about that. Okay, so I, with the risk of failing miserably, uh, I thought I'd uh, try a little audience participation. So if you don't want to participate or you don't want me to ask you a question or come over to you, don't raise your hand. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so and uh, when I'm talking, just stay in the position that you're in as far as how you're sitting. Okay, so uh, anybody who has low back pain right in this moment, like right now, not yesterday or tomorrow, but anybody who has back pain right now, does anybody have back pain, low back pain right now? Okay, a couple people, good. Um, it, not good, but you know what I mean. <laughs> okay, good for me. Um, okay, in, ge in general, generally speaking, the longer you sit, um, if, the, if the longer you sit, the worse the pain generally gets, and the more uncomfortable you feel in the low back, keep your hand raised. Okay, good, couple people. Oh, out there too, wait, oh, okay. Okay, uh, if the pain generally decreases when you stand, or kind of walk around a bit, keep your hand raised. Okay, a couple people, still the same, great. If you have leg pain below the knee, put your hand down, because you should probably see me at, your off, at my office. <laughs> do you do, right now? Yeah, yeah. Leg below, Re below your knee. So if you have leg pain below your knee, right now. Oh, okay, great, okay. Then keep your hand up. All right, up. so any one of you could, is it all right if I come to one of you? That's fine. Uh, I'll come with John. Um, okay. I'm going to grab this. All right. This, this leads into... Oh, stay sitting. Stay sitting. Okay, so can you, say, can you say your name for everybody who doesn't? My name is Jeanne. All right, Jeanne. Uh, uh, can you... Let's do this. Okay. So, do you feel the pain right now? Okay. So slide a little bit forward, that's good, and then sit up real tall, tall as you can. Mm -hmm. Okay, hold it right there. Does that change the pain at all? Yeah, a little better. A little better, okay, great. All right, slide your butt all the way back against the back of the chair, all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way. And then lean forward a little bit. I'm gonna stick this kind of in your back, lean back into that. All right, how's that feel? Much better. Oh, sorry. Much better. Much better. Okay, great. All right, that worked. Great. Uh, I did not fall flat on my face. So um, let's talk a little bit about why that worked, because this is going to play into what I'm going to talk about for a second. So that is termed, you can just keep that. Um, that's termed uh, mechanical pain. So what we term mechanical pain is basically if I take my finger and I pull it back as far as it goes, and then I relax it, this joint's fine. It's designed to take that, right? But if I pull it back and I hold it three or four minutes all the way back, this starts to ache. Um, there's nothing wrong with the joint. It's totally fine. It's normal. But all joints respond to pressure over time with mechanical pain. So you can do that to any joint in the body. And it happens a lot in the back. And it happens a lot in the neck, um, particularly with sitting. So uh, one thing that uh, Jean could potentially do to help her back is actually stick something in her back when she's sitting the majority of the time. And my assumption is you, you sit a lot at work. Yeah. Um, so at work in particular, she would use something like that, which she can use now if she wants. That's first. Um, so a uh, couple, couple parallels on that example. So one is um, learning to be ob objective, objectively observe symptoms and pain without judgment. That's a big deal. Um, which uh, the folks who raised their hand started, started to do, and probably all of you 
started to do, is um, paying attention to how the pain is in the moment, um, not like how you expect it to be tomorrow based on something or whatever. Um, or how it was last week. Or how it was last week, right. Um, that leads then into finding particular patterns that are more physical oftentimes uh, that you can have exercise some kind of control over. So you start to see like, oh, I actually can do some things to um, control the symptoms. You see how that kind of is like self-efficacy, like I believe that I can change my own particular pain. Um, and then uh, leading a little bit more into, away from that particular example, but a little bit more into some of the other stuff. Well, actually, no, I take that back. Uh, same example, active language and how we frame these things is really important also. So when a patient comes, oftentimes their primary doctor will have said, well, you have arthritis in your back. And this was maybe 10 years ago. And we know that, that language around these kind of things really influences pain long term. So if you think you have arthritis in your back, you're just going to assume, well, I can't really do much about that. It's just going to degenerate. So using language like um, dysfunction versus damage or um, normal wear and tear kind of thing versus um, uh, degeneration or uh, degenerative disc disease or degenerative joint disease. Um, also, uh, yet another kind of thing away from this, well, I guess it wasn't yet another, but moving away from this a little bit is uh, the actual idea of uh, that movement, even in spite of a little bit of pain, is important. That movement, doing the things that you like to do, um, uh, is actually important for outcome. If you start to avoid these types of, a lot of, um, say you like to dance. If you stop dancing, as a result of back pain, um, it actually plays into all of these other things, into the uh, sort of passive coping and fear and depression. Um, so it doesn't take the pain away, but you, right. uh, but then also you're not doing something that you enjoy. Right, exactly. And, and uh, that actually, that part of it, like pushing through some level of pain, now there's context to that, some pain really is not good, uh, so we, you know, we need to contextualize that a little bit, but um, that part of it moving into pain takes some real courage on the front end from the patient, and it takes some trust within the relationship with, with me. Um, I can't just tell someone who I've never met before, ah, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. I guess it's not helpful. Uh, so, so, yeah, that, that sort of idea. And then the final thing is um, the actual... Um, the actual power of just believing that you have some utility in your overall outcome of, of pain in this context is really important. There are occasions where um, I'll have a patient that has not been, she, he or she hasn't been doing what I'm like recommending consistently at all, and they clearly have a physical um, pattern. I'll actually have to sort of call it to attention and then sort of, for probably lack of training, beg the person <laughs> to like do a particular thing for, for at least a few days and see what happens. Because oftentimes they just don't believe that they can change it. 
uh, and they have to be told multiple times, like, and not even told, but like shown, look, this is the pattern. You can consistently decrease this pain when you do these two or three things. Um, and then they, after a while, get the, that idea, but it takes a little bit of work. So anyway. So this, um, this kind of uh, forward thinking kind of uh, movement in, in the way that you treat patients um, uh, in, in a lot of ways is kind of maybe a slightly less sophisticated or just a, a more abbreviated version of what Jesus is doing in this passage because he doesn't say what's wrong. You know, he doesn't say when you do this, does it make it better or worse, whatever, right? He just says, like, do you want to be made well? And he asks this question of this patient uh, because, and the patient has, has already anticipated what the question is going to be, but it's a completely different question than what Jesus actually asks um, because he's just used to kind of rehearsing his story, right? And so what Jesus is asking us today and every day is, is to, to begin to look forward, right? Do you want to be made well? This is the, Jesus, the question that Jesus is asking us today and every day. Well, every time I speak in a meeting, no one pays attention. But if a male colleague says the same thing I did, he gets all the credit. Do you want to be made well? I'm not like all those other white people. I didn't vote for Trump. Do you want to be made well? The number of hate crimes or hateful activities seems to be increasing at an alarming rate, and I'm afraid of what that means for me. Do you want to be made well? All of the grievances and the defenses and the fears might be true, but they don't answer the question that Jesus is asking. Do you want to be made well? There is something that I think could be so easily missed in this passage if you're not reading it closely. Like, yes, this sad sack is so thoroughly lost in his hard luck story that it doesn't even occur to him that Jesus' question is what it is. But then Jesus takes his question and just, like, turns it into three hard commands. Get up, pick up your mat, walk. If he didn't want to be made well, the man would have spent the rest of his life clutching his lottery ticket, right? But he does it actually, right? After 38 years, that man gets up. He starts doing the exercises that Jesus tells him to do. You know, he gets up, he picks up his mat, and he walks away. He saw his chance, and he took it. On Friday night, uh, the vice president-elect, some of you might have seen this already, uh, attended a Broadway performance of, of Hamilton, which honestly I think feels like a really bizarro choice of entertainment for him, considering the administration's stance on immigrants, people of color, and folks who identify as LGBTQ. But anyway, during the curtain call, one of the actors spoke directly to him, and there's a, a video of that.
wonderful American story told by a diverse group of men and women of different colors, creeds, and orientations. <laughs> Actors of Hamilton, um, we're not going to miss their shot. Um, bum, bum, if you know this, anyway. Um, so they weren't going to miss their shot at speaking up for their dignity and the dignity of countless others. They chose to use what they had. They chose to be creative. And they chose to be brave. Last week, we made space for folks here to share their hearts after the election. And as your pastor, I knew that it was necessary for folks to not feel alone. I knew that we needed to hear one another, to grieve together, and to catch a glimpse of the world through one another's lenses. There was pain, there was anger, and there was a great deal of grief that was marbled with hope. Last week, we created a safe space and a safe community, and that was right and necessary. But today, and every day forward, this won't just be a safe space. This will also be a brave space. One that bravely faces the reality that we live in with clear eyes and a steeled spirit that looks our situation and circumstances squarely in the face. One that unflinchingly answers Jesus, not with descriptions of our circumstances, but with his response of obedience. Yes. Yes, today we say yes. Yes, I will get up off the ground. I will boldly trust that things can change if I move with intention. Yes, I will pick up my mat. I will exercise power over my circumstances where I can. Some of you may have heard that uh, in the Obama administration, it's two-thirds men, and so the women at different meetings were constantly finding themselves talked over or having their ideas co-opted and then given credit, men taking credit for it. And so what they started to do was this amazing thing. They didn't complain, just complain about it. They began to practice amplification. So when one of the women at the table would say something, another woman would say, hey, yes, that was a great idea. And so it couldn't be uh, glossed over that a woman had said it and that a man could just pick it up. But they started to strategize, right, to think smart about their situation. So we say, yes, I will pick up my mat. I will shoulder the weight of this situation as it is and as my ancestors of faith did so long ago. I will pick up the cross of racism and bigotry and sexism and economic injustice. I will strategize. I will learn how to strategize. I will fill the gaps of my own ignorance. I will claim and work creatively toward the world and claiming the life that God created us to live. And yes, I will walk. Even if the way feels too long, too steep, or too stony, yes, I will walk the hard walk, choosing to actively engage my pain through exercising my civil and God-given rights to claim the life abundant that Jesus created me to live. I will walk on behalf of dignity. I will stand up for myself and for others with integrity and intelligence because I know that God has called us all beloved, because I know that an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Yes, I will get up. Yes, I will pick up my mat. And yes, I will walk. Yes, today we say yes. God's love doesn't let us waste away waiting for a chance to get into the pool. God's love isn't a lottery ticket. And God's love is not about survival of the fittest. It doesn't pit us against one another. No, God seeks wholeness for all of us and asks not only that we pursue it for ourselves, but for also for one another. This man who was sick, not once did Jesus require faith from him before healing. 
In fact, he went out and kind of like talked about Jesus behind his back afterwards. So faith wasn't even a prerequisite. But what did, what did need to be required was obedient action if he was going to live it all into God's future for him. So how then will you act for God's future, even if you're not sure if you have enough faith for it? How will you act for God's future? In these days, this community, I believe, is more vital than ever. We need one another more than ever to remind each other that we have a future, that there is a story that God is telling through our lives, regardless of who rules, who governs. We need this brave space to be called to courage, to get up, to pick up our mats, and to walk. Together today, let us rededicate ourselves to the promises that we made through our baptism, that we made to one another through our baptism, right? Let us recommit to acting for God's future, to fight like hell for God's future, a future not just of healing but of wholeness, wholeness of life for ourselves and for one another and for all of God's good, beloved creation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for safe spaces, and we thank you for brave spaces. Help this space to be a place that calls us to courage, to deeper discipleship, to, to um, almost a scary level of vulnerability with one another, that we might find strength in our relationships together, in our relationship with you, and live into the lives Live out those stories that you've created us and called us to live so long ago. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. For everyone born A place at the table For everyone born Clean water and bread shelter of space, a safe place for growing, for everyone born, a star overhead, and God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy, compassion.
and joy. Help us to be the workers for creating justice and joy, not just in this world, but for ourselves as well. We thank you that you call us to joyful work, joyful work that seeks joy for others. By this table, in this space, help us to move forward with bravery and courage, reminded that we don't do this work alone. Amen. <laughs> 